listening to the Keeping It Juicy podcast. You made squeezing nutrition. Don't forget to subscribe so you can join us every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And add us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping It Juicy Podcast. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our show. Today episode is- nine. Episode nine, (laughs) we're going to be talking about BMI and its credibility. So in essence, we're going to be talking about what BMI is, the history of BMI, uh, the credibility of BMI, and what other better measures of health there are. But before we get into that, we do want to talk about some new nutrition in the news. Uh. (laughs) So this is a very hot topic and... I kind of heard you got into a little um, social media scandal. It wasn't a scandal. It was a <laughs> nice little debacle. I just, I just, I don't, I mean, it wasn't even, it was about the whole concept of celery juice. I mean, it wasn't, if you guys have heard of the medical medium, um, it was basically based off of that. I was basically trying to, basically stand up to this stand up to this one person for basically attacking a doctor that was just going through her experiences through celery juice like her experiences in the field certain studies that she was reviewing for the general topic to really like just to let people know she she wasn't discouraging anybody from drinking celery juice she wasn't like putting bash on anybody she was just telling people this is the claims but this is not what studies are showing basically i was just defending her against these other people that they think that she was bashing others for drinking celery juice which is not the case nor was she pushing pharmaceutical agendas which apparently that just vanished, came out of Right, I read that post too, and I didn't see anything about pharmaceutical reference or anything of that nature. And I was looking to that, into that Instagram, um, that woman, and she's a nutrition mm-hmm. coach. And on top of that, I don't get how. I was going through all of her posts, and I don't get how this woman, she was on TED Talks. I noticed that. I was like, what an actual fuck? I mean, she's not qualified. It seems like she's some sort of influencer. But I what I, I should be on fucking TED Talks. I don't know. <laughs> like Yeah, but basically, uh the R D and this other health coach got into a very heated <laughs> Instagram argument just kind of about what the doctor was trying to say. I I said I should have some celery juice to calm down my hypertension right now. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah, so apparently, if you haven't seen from social media, like celery juice, go check it out. I guarantee you'll find plenty of posts promoting celery juice. And the whole concept basically just seems to be blending up a bunch of celery and then either straining it or juicing it. Apparently, drinking it every day can cure or improve some skin diseases or anti-inflammatory diseases. Basically, all of the major claims of the cellar juice basically traces back, all the benefits traces back to the medical medium. If you don't know who he is, just check him out. Google, Google him. Check out his Instagram 
and you'll see what we're talking about. Basically, one of the posts said that celery juice is a teeming. That's an interesting word, <laughs> teeming. <laughs> There's two A's in it. Oh, my God. Okay. It's teeming with powerful anti-inflammatory properties. This means it is highly beneficial for people who offer who suffer from chronic and mystery illness, including <laughs> oh my gosh, mystery, <laughs> including conditions labeled autoimmune. That's a very bold statement, mm-hmm. autoimmune. So this could be anything from Hashimoto's thyroiditis, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, all these extra names, <laughs> celiac disease, irritable bowel syndrome, diabetes. Ooh, irritable bowel syndrome. Maybe I do need this. Just kidding. <laughs> Acne, lupus, um, sarcoidosis, gastroesophageal reflux disease, gout, intestinal cramping, bloating, tingles, numbness, vertigo, constipation, anything, you name it, apparently celery juice is supposed to help this out. And all of these are basically symptoms and illnesses that are mysteries to medical communities, even though they have names. Mm-hmm. The true causes are not yet known by medical research and science. That's what he states. Right. And keep in mind, this statement, we took, we literally took it from his website. So we'll, we'll link that in our sources. But the main... Not word for word, but you know what we're getting Exactly. (laughs) Just kind of a synopsis because some of those words are really hard. But the main problem with his website and this article in general is that he's just like stating all of these things and how celery has these powerful anti-inflammatory properties, but he doesn't actually cite it. I mean, there's no sources or external studies that are actually listed in any of the articles um, that he posts. And I was just looking through it right now. Maybe like he's put some sort of disclaimer. He doesn't even really put a disclaimer. This medical medium guy, it seems like everybody seems to praise him like he's a god. Like, you know how I'm not really much of a Christian, but if you go to church and you have a priest there and he kind of just kind of, he preaches to you about the teachings of life in a very powerful, persuasive way that relates to you. And I feel like this medical medium guy, I mean, if you get if you understand the word medium, I mean, he kind of uses this similar influence to ch- kind of draw people into thinking he relates right. more to them. Let's see. Oh, wait, there is a bottom of the, at the bottom of the page, there is a disclaimer that does state that this blog, its content and any linked material are presented for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, treatment, or prescribing. Nothing contained in or accessible from this blog should be considered to be medical advice, diagnosis, treatment or prescribing, or a promise of benefits, claim of cure, legal warranty, or guarantee of results to be achieved. Considering how long that was, I blanked right. out too. So I understand why people went right. over that. And it's, of course, it's a disclaimer. So it's very, very tiny at the bottom of the page. But the way his blogs are written seems like this is the cure. This is going to treat your problem. Yet on his website and like his blogs, he does have this disclaimer. And disclaimers are great. I mean, I think we all need them because the United States is very Sue happy. But unfortunately, much of the general public takes this pseudoscience and takes it as just medical advice, just because someone out there with authority said it. 
And this happens all the time with celebrities, fitness influencers, and celebrity doctors. I'm sure I even believe this guy, I saw Kim Kardashian making a post or an Instagram story about celery juice. (laughs) So I wouldn't be surprised if like he paid her off to do it or something. So just like that, once someone sees Kim Kardashian's post, I'm sure he gained an extra couple exactly. thousand followers. The research about Sully, I mean, it's kind of vague. I tried to even look at it. It's true. Sully does have anti-inflammatory properties because there's phytochemicals. But you have to understand, so do other fruits and vegetables. That's why you should incorporate other fruits and vegetables, not just celery juice. As I was doing research, I was like really hoping that I would come across a study that stated celery juice contains this. And this is, you know, a compound that is very unique to celery that no other fruits or vegetables have. And then I might believe that celery has some properties that no other fruits or vegetables have. But Studies like that, I, I couldn't find any. It might exist, but I could find it. I mean, I was just I was just thinking, like, if you try to wrap your head around the whole idea, um, celery juice, if you just you imagine people drinking all the celery juice and they're claiming all these things, like, my skin is clearing up. Maybe the fact that they're actually drinking, like, something other than soda and tea and juice... Um, but something from an actual vegetable. The fact that they're even drinking more in the first place could be the reason why their skin is clearing up. I'm not saying that's the case, but I mean, there's it's a multifaceted question as to whether whether celery juice is actually the cause for all of this. It can't be a cause and effect when it's more than likely showing up exactly. as just a correlation. And anyone who has ever done research knows these types of problems. And unfortunately, because this guy and many others don't cite their sources, it's just very hard to believe it. And then you end up with huge disclaimers like he has at the bottom of his blog. I get what this guy is doing. Like, he makes money. I I, I get it. I I do, because he's also an author. But, I mean, to an extent, like, part of what he's doing could be, could turn a perfectly unhealthy person into a healthier person because of his actions, which I get that part. And I'm all for more people sweat, spreading more awareness for their health. But I feel like these specific claims just don't align the best. And it shouldn't really be taken religiously, um, but with right. a grain of salt as anything. And, you know... More than likely, if you're drinking celery juice, nothing bad is going to happen to you. There's no negative risks associated with this. Like, if anything, it's just going to help you. Our argument is just that the facts don't align with the the facts, you know, air quotes. The facts they're saying don't align with the studies that are out. And, you know, we just want to draw attention to these false claims. And should we take a... Deeper dive into what we're actually going to talk Let's about 12 it. minutes later. Um, so basically jumping right into BMI, as most of us probably know, that stands for body mass index. So that's basically a, a relationship between your height and your weight. And you can figure out your BMI uh, two different ways. Uh, the most common way is 
kilo, your weight in kilograms divided by uh, meters squared, which is a reference of height, or you can do your weight in pounds and multiply that by 703 divided by your height in inches squared. That's a lot of math. Um, That's a lot of math. <laughs> and yeah, you can, I prefer to do the <laughs> kilograms over meters squared, divide your weight in pounds by 2.2, find your meters, divide, but whatever. <laughs> Anyway, so there's different classifications of a BMI that actually determines what health status you're at. So this might sound a little bit gibberish, but bear with me. So a BMI, <laughs> a BMI of 18.49 or below basically means a person is underweight. A BMI of 18.5 to 24.99 means they are of normal weight. A BMI of 25 to 29.99 means that they are overweight. And anything of a BMI of 30 or more basically means that they're obese and there are classifications after that, but I don't really feel like going into that right now. But that's the general gist of a BMI. I think they've even created a category up to like a BMI of 40, which is crazy. <laughs> they did it until 50. Did they? Oh, geez. There's like a class one, two, and three obese, right. I believe, if I'm not right. mistaken. Right. So that's a fun time. Um, with that being said, let's kind of do a quick snippet onto the history of BMI. I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time because I know you guys just love history. Um, so basically <laughs> what it, how the BMI came about, basically it came about because researchers, medical professionals, the government, and even insurance companies needed a simpler way to track health risks among the U S population. Um, if we really want to go into it, um, the first guy that actually came up with his wife to Wow, I can't talk. I came up with this weight to height index. Um, his name is Adolf Quetelet uh, in, in 1832, and he called it the Quetelet Index. And using this method, a researcher by the name of Ansel Keys coined the term body mass index BMI today. Um, basically, what he was doing, he was looking at a study about several thousand men from five different countries. And he was trying to analyze their adiposity body density. So how much fat is there and the subcutaneous fat thickness. So that's basically, if I'm not mistaken, is that the fat in between your organs? Subcutaneous is below your skin. Visceral is around your organs. I have a master's. Uh, <laughs> help. Just a tiny, Just a tiny detail got overlooked. And plus, I had to work this morning, so don't judge me. I did too. But shut up. (laughs) Um, But basically, um, he was looking at the two measures of the body weight. And by using that, long story short, Keys came up with a body mass index as a straightforward way to measure body weight in relation to height. So as people became more overweight and health risks started to become more associated with overweight and... um, it started to become more clear that um, that association existed. So epidemiologists across the world actually starting using 
the BMI as a way to track disease risk factors in the general population in general. So that's why in 1985, the National Institutes of Health, I'm sure you guys have heard of it, started to use the BMI to define obesity in the United States. So at first, the thresholds were more conservative. I mean, it's not that... It was more conservative back then. Mm. So, but by 1998, the NIH started using the aforementioned, what in the actual fuck? They started using different categories to, so basically um, the NIH took this idea of BMI and tried to encompass all ages, both sexes, and every culture. And eventually the NIH set the standard in 1998 for the BMI that we know today. Keep in mind, I I wanted to reemphasize the thresholds were more conservative back then. And then in the 90s, like mid to late 90s, it started to become more um, uh, after this way, you're automatically overweight or obese. Right. Just FYI. Which is crazy considering how much of the population falls in the obese categories right now. And we are getting big. Exactly. By the year. Exactly. So let's just jump right into the credibility of BMI. Like we mentioned before, all BMI does is look at the relationship between one's height and weight. But it doesn't actually take into account what that weight actually is. Right. And what we mean by that is the discrepancy discrepancy usually comes between body fat and lean muscle mass. A person whose BMI says they are overweight or obese is often considered unhealthy, but while people with a normal BMI are seen as healthy. And that's kind of why BMI was developed in the first place. Again, it was just kind of a quick and easy way for the government and health professionals to assess the health of Americans. But research published in 2016 suggests that it was incorrect for 75 million Americans. Researchers have found that 54 million Americans had been classed as overweight or obese, but cardiometabolic measures showed that they were actually healthy. Another 21 million were classified as normal in terms of BMI, but they were unhealthy. Other scientists, however, suggested that although some people may appear to be overweight but healthy, the extra weight puts them at higher risks for certain diseases as they get older. I guess thick is being thick with the extra C is not always good. <laughs> right. And I'm I'm sure you guys have heard the term skinny fat be thrown around very, very much um, just because you're low in weight for your height and have a low BMI doesn't mean like you are metabolically healthy. Mm-hmm. So let's jump into what better measures there are for health. So basically, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people will agree with me at this point, body fat percentage testing is a much better indicator of health than just BMI. So we can figure out your body fat percentage through hydrostatic weighing and DEXA scans. So some of you may be familiar, hydrostatic weighing, you need like this big pool, they submerge you, you let all the air out of your lungs. That pool is not big. Well, <laughs> that pool is not big. It's kind of gross. Well, it's it's not like it can't fit in your purse, you know? Like it I, Have I flustered you? <laughs> yes. They they throw you in this pool. You got to let all your air out and then they just look at like the water displacement basically for your body fat percentage. 
Um, DEXA scans are another piece of fancy equipment, and those are actually designed to test your bone density, but they're also pretty accurate as body fat um, testers. And then the probably most affordable option and the most accessible to most people is a technology called bioelectrical impedance. And many home scales actually have this technology and there are higher caliber machines that still use the same technology. And these are uh, machines like the in-body scans. Uh, skin folds are another option if you are trained in it. These are all fine and dandy, but the variance and the margin of error of all of these different tests can be anywhere from 3 to 7%. This means that the test result could be off up to 7%, which is a huge amount. So just like a personal story really quick. At my office, we have an in-body scan, which again is a bioelectrical impedance technology. I also have a scale at home, which uses the same technology. My scale at home is just like a typical scale you step on and it tells you your body fat percentage. The in-body scan at work, you step on it, but you also have these handheld um, bars that you hang on to. So it sends the electrical signal not only through your upper quadrant, but your lower quadrant as well. Whereas your scales at home, it's only getting like your bottom half. So if you're more top heavy, you can see how the scans will be different. And honestly, the difference between my scale at home and my scale at work is about 7% difference, even if I do it within 30 minutes of each other. So that's important to know. That's helpful. Right. I mean, the truth probably lies like somewhere in between, mm-hmm. but is what it is. Anyways, with that being said, aside from a BMI, we also in healthcare, in healthcare areas, we also look at waist to hip ratio. So basically the logic behind this is that the, if there's more abdominal fat, so a larger width to height ratio, if you have more um, abdom- abdominal fat, so basically a larger waist to hip ratio, that puts you at a higher risk for disease, no matter what your BMI or overall body fat percentage is. I mean, you have to keep in mind, if you have more abdominal fat, that's where all your major organs are. So just take that into consideration. Um, so one suggestion to that we often recommend is to combine that BMI with the waist circumference for a more accurate measure rather than just a BMI by itself. So some scientists argue that waist to hip ratio might be more appropriate than BMI alone or BMI with the waist circumference, as it has been proven as a predictor of cardiometabolic health. So base. <laughs> So basically, researchers have suggested that you should try to keep that waist circumference as small as possible um, to basically maximize health and life expectancy. Lord help me today. Right. (laughs) So basically, um, a person with fat around their abdomen has a higher risk of heart disease and metabolic disorders as the fat does affect the internal organs such as the liver, heart, and kidneys. Like we said, you know, abdominal fat, that's where all your major organs are. You do not want to have fat around your organs. That is no good. Fat around the hips and thighs is believed to be less risky unless you have knee problems. Yeah. So so with that being said, let's jump into the next one, which is the ideal healthy weight. So we all hold this whole 
I mean, some some health health areas actually have this whole idea of body weight in place, which we'll probably go on to talk about later on. But it's really hard to figure out what a healthy weight is exactly because one size does not fit all. Right. And factors that will affect your healthy weight include just your overall general health status, your height, your muscle to fat ratio, which is a huge one, which is basically your body fat percentage. Also, bone density will affect your ideal weight, just your body type in general, um, your age, and your sex. With that being said, I think we want to kind of leave off this episode with a subject that we don't really talk about much, and that's BMI and health Mm -hmm. insurance. So... This is a big one. In case you guys don't know, we can actually pay more. So basically, we can actually pay more for our insurance if we actually weigh more. To an extent, that's understandable. But if you think about it, it costs more if you're bigger. How fucked up is this logic? I I mean, insurance companies are allowed to actually charge higher health insurance rates to people who's Body mass index, air quotes, BMI, a a common measure of obesity if it's too high. On the BMI scale, a person with a score above 25, again, is considered overweight, above 30 is obese. People with BMIs over 30 or 31 can see an increase in their insurance premiums of as much as 25%. That's a a fuck ton of money. Yeah, and if their BMI is more than 39 they can be charged 50% more, 50% more than someone with a BMI of 25. I mean, I'm just thinking about myself personally because I'm sitting at a hefty 150 pounds <laughs> at, at five foot four, and I'm actually considered overweight. Like, do I have to pay more? Like, right. Anyone I know. Like most athletes or athletic people that I know who lift weights or play a sport of any sort, they are all in the overweight category. And that's just because they have a ton of muscle. <sighs> I'm, I'll, just, I'll just get skinny. That's, just, that's the only solution. It's those, it's those gains. Those gains are fucking your life up. Is it fair... Um, for our insurers to penalize the overweight with higher weights because they because they cost the companies more. I I don't. And I'm not even sure it's been proven that people with a higher BMI cost insurance companies more. I mean, my logic would tell me that people who fall in like the class three obesity category with like a BMI of 40 or 50 would probably cost insurance companies more. But if your BMI is like 30 or 32, there's a really strong chance that you are still a very healthy individual. I feel like my sister is a pretty hefty person too, but I feel like she's very metabolically healthy. Like her right. her labs are on check. I mean, aside from the slight vitamin D deficiency, but overall she's pretty healthy and she's, I think, pretty up there i don't know it's just right let me let me say this um so higher premiums for people with unhealthy habits is actually not a new thing Mm -hmm. it's currently common and much less controversial for smokers to pay steeper rates than non-smokers i know this for a fact because 
at my company now, um, when we were transitioning into Fresenius through the acquisition, they would ask us straight up when we look for our health insurance, are we a smoker or are we a non-smoker? I checked off non-smoker, but my other coworker who checked off as smoker, she has to pay an extra pro rate. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, but keep in mind, these, these situations aren't really parallel. According to... Um, a health consulting firm, this guy named Michael Wood, he's just saying that the situations aren't parallel. Smoking, he argues, seems more like a choice than gaining weight. You don't have to smoke to live. You have to le- You have to eat to live. I mean... Which is very true. <laughs> it's very true. And that's a lot harder and a lot more complicated of a situation. And I would love to hear what you guys think about that statement. It's very true. I don't know Mm -hmm. what else to say. Yeah, so please let us know your thoughts and your stance on health insurance companies uh, charging more money for those with a higher BMI. And, you know, please let us know if you have any more information on this subject. All right. Well, I guess that wraps up the rest (laughs) of our episode. Yep. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Keeping It Juicy podcast. Your main squeeze of nutrition. Don't forget to subscribe so you can join us every Tuesday for a brand new episode. Also, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Keeping It Juicy Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Five stars, no less. On whatever platform you're listening to, or send us an email at keepingitjuicypodcast at gmail.com. Or if you have any topics you'd like for us to touch upon, shoot us an email. Until next time, don't do anything that I wouldn't do. Yeah, just... What the mean? I was saying... Oh my god. Go. Help! I was just saying... You might want to edit this. Help. I don't even know where you are. Um, oh, not with the height. Wait there. <laughs> No. <laughs> wrong. 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 <laughs> so re- researchers actually suggest that you should keep that waist circumference to less than half the height. Um, height. What in the heck? What are we reading? What? Where did you get this? What? Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I, I didn't. Put what the that. fuck is this? I didn't put that. Um, let me. I I'm just gonna say something that's gonna make more sense. Okay. Hurry up! I need to pee. <laughs> <laughs>